0: BBCC episode 60, my realization of the day. Uh, I kind of forgot that uh, I was splitting these two episodes and I didn't write a realization for this one. Um, your boy is real toasty right now, as I have been <laughs> all day uh, pretty much since this afternoon. I've had about six edible gummies, smoked a few bowls, and uh, yeah, and back to back episodes. This is going to get um, real fun. Let's go ahead and dive into it. More time, 2021. Hello, hello. It is your boy Devon Taylor here, aka Underscore Daddy Disco, and this is the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. This is a podcast where we dive into our favorite subgenres and franchises in the horror genre. But this is the final episode of the year. Um, this is the second annual Bloody Awards. Um, uh, We did these last year as well as the rankings Um, last year. We had Mr. Uh, Johnny the Horror Hack was here and uh, we had a real good time giving out some uh, more specific uh, awards to some of our favorite movies. Um, uh, uh, We will be getting into spoilers um, for or I'm I'm sure we won't get too many, but there will be spoilers for um, some of the movies that we're talking about. Um, so if you just haven't seen a ton of, uh, uh, if you haven't seen a ton of 2021 horror releases, you know you can skip this episode. That's cool, but you should stick around anyways because it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I do have uh, my guest back with me. Well, still with me. Um, we are recording back to back. And thank you uh, for spending your evening with me. Um, I know it's kind of late where he is at right now. Um, host of the Daily Horror Habit podcast, Jay Krieger.
1: Thank you for having me, man. It's uh, No matter the hour, I always enjoy chatting horror with you and uh, getting to recap what has been uh, what I think is a pretty, uh, pretty enjoyable year for horror. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't want to be anywhere else to chat it so thanks for having me again
0: yeah man um I appreciate it and yeah I'm excited for this one um, because we do get to get a little more specific about um, some of the movies that we talked about um, in last episode in our rankings and then probably some other movies too that might not have gotten mentioned in uh, the rankings um, so we have um we have a total of eight awards that we're going to be giving out uh, tonight including stuff for the best performances best direction uh, best score and uh, we have some uh, wild card picks as well uh, which are which will uh, be like extra personal awards uh, between me and Jay to give to some of these movies so I'm ready to dive in so for one last time in 2021 willem Defoe let's get it going! Oh! All right. It is the second annual Bloody Awards. Jay, thank you for joining me. Uh, We have a bevy of things to give out this evening. When we will start, because ladies always go first, we will uh, kick it off with Best Female Performance. So what do you have uh, for your first award?
1: So my uh, award for Best Female Performance is going to go to Miss Rebecca Hall who was in David Bruckner's the night house, which I had mentioned as being one of my favorite movies of the year in the last episode. Um, this was a performance that I don't think I would have enjoyed the film nearly as much had it not been the driving factor of the movie. Uh, you know, I, like i said in the last episode, I think David Bruckner did a great job of handling both the very sort of, uh, mental illness and, uh, the handling of trauma and grief and PTSD and those very real world issues and things that people struggle with. And at the same time though, I think that Rebecca Hall sold this incredibly well. Um, You know, I was not anticipating her performance being the driving factor or the, maybe the factor that really uh, I took away from this movie, just because my only other experience with uh, her had been, I think she played the love interest in that Ben Affleck movie, The Town, which is just like, that's a me thing, right? That was my very limited exposure to her body of work and mm-hmm. her ability to give what was, I found to be very an emotionally draining performance uh, in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. She was able to sell a lot of the different just issues that that character deals with in a way that didn't feel overly cliched. I'm sure there were at times A moment or two that were uh, more in line with what you would expect from somebody that was dealing with grief or trauma or PTSD. But overall, as a whole, I found that her performance felt the most grounded and it felt like it was done so in a way where the director was not allowing their vision of horror to dilute or to ham up the portrayal of those different things that that character's grappling with in a way that Sometimes I find that horror has an over reliance of, well, there's a female character that's dealing with something. So we're going to make her extra hysterical. We're going to give you four or five outbursts of her that she's just she's lost it and she's freaking out at her closest friends and family and making scenes everywhere. Now, this was a performance that was more in the subtleties. And there were, of course, a couple of moments that were more overt in her grief and her expression of that. But they came at the right times. And it never felt as if we were getting these moments that were just done. So for the sake of wanting to get a big reaction out of the audience uh, in the most dramatic ways possible, there's a moment in the film very early on after her husband has killed himself and she's grappling with trauma and loss and grief and these different things that I've mentioned. And she's at work and she kind of loses track of time when she's sitting in her uh, classroom, because she's a teacher and she kind of looks down at her computer after she's been zoning out for an hour or two. And she looks down and it's like, oh, what was she Googling when she was zoning out? She was Googling handguns. And it's like, that's such a moment that sticks with me because A, it is a representation of somebody whose grief and depression has reached this level that they're not even aware that they're subconsciously Googling these things or thinking about these things. And then being faced with the reality that somebody walks into the classroom and she realizes, oh, this is up on my computer. They could have seen this. And that felt like such a real moment to me in that somebody's grief has so overtaken their life and it's so preoccupied them that th- they're at work and they're like Googling handguns, which is a, something that I think is profoundly disturbing in just how casual that moment is. And it moves on from that moment very quickly. Mm-hmm. And like I said, that was, I think, within the first 20 minutes of the movie. But you never return to that. You know what I mean? Like, I feel yeah. like... Some directors maybe would have the inclination to be like, well, let's give them three or four moments, let's give the audience three or four moments like that to really, really hone in on the fact that she's depressed and she's thinking about killing herself and these things. But it's such a fleeting moment that doesn't really linger on it that it makes it more effective for me because it's like, oh, this is where her subconscious is wandering and who knows how many other moments she's had like that throughout the course of the film or throughout the course before the camera even started rolling, right? That's that Idea that Bruckner does such a good job of, and you know, I think we had mentioned briefly in the previous episode, like his film *The Ritual* is such a wonderful mediation on dealing with trauma and grief in a similar way, but maybe in that film it was uh, it was done so from a different perspective. But I think that he does such a great job of just establishing that these are real people that are dealing with real world, sort of society might still view it as taboo subject matter, but in *The nighthouse I think Rebecca Hall sells it in a way that bolsters that in a way that we see occasionally in horror but it's not always as profound and it's not always the driving factor in a film because without her i don't know that the night house is making my list uh nearly as high as it was this year yeah and she uh definitely
0: has a lot to do in that film and uh yeah a lot of performances in horror movies um uh, you know you think of them being kind of more showy And now this one, she, um, you know, takes, you know, even if it is kind of some cliche stuff of like, of course she is like becoming an alcoholic and like stuff like that. But like, she still even handles that with like a nuance and like the, the awkward encounters with her friends. Like she even sells those and then like, um, all the physical stuff she does in the third act. Um, yeah, great performance.
1: But even with the alcoholism, like that's one of my least favorite. Tropes I think of these movie Mm -hmm. horror Movies that specifically delve into that right Because it's like well what else are they going to do to Cope but I even love that The little detail that Bruckner includes In that the only alcohol that I Think we see her drink in the house where she Does most of her drinking other than her Friends being like hey your husband killed himself Let's go out drinking at a bar around a bunch Of strangers and stuff which doesn't seem Like the best coping method but I think That uh, that little detail that the only Alcohol she drinks in the house I'm pretty sure is his reserve of, I think it's Cognac or something, or Brandy, Brandy, which she doesn't even like. And she even makes mention of like, oh, she's developing a taste for it. But I think in that small detail, like that's a fleeting connection Mm -hmm. that she has with him, other than like the house, of course, and whatnot. But I just love those little details. And we get one, maybe two little instances of her being drunk, but and making, I guess, I wouldn't even say like making a scene. We don't have to have that moment of her destroying the house destroying the bar or anything like that it's more showing how the alcohol is making her speak her mind in a way that sober she doesn't feel comfortable doing which you know it is still in line with that trope of like alcohol being the open the ultimate coping mechanism for people dealing with those things in terms of like film's portrayal of it but overall I think that it's done a little more strained than I was expecting which I came to appreciate because it makes her seem more believable as a person rather than okay let's get three mm-hmm. scenes now of her like destroying a house or telling somebody what she thinks, like fuck you, those type of moments. And I think that it's just handled in a way that made it stick with me more than a majority of horror films. when they try to like just show a character's descent, their waning descent into alcoholism and using that as a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. A really powerful performance for sure. Um, my best female performance is um, the lead performance by agatha roussel in t10 um i just thought her performance was just so incredible and you know and there's like it's there's a weird stigma to like first performances that like you know people are like usually they'll like forgive like performances or like if somebody's like in their first performance um not so great and then like kind of being like oh you know they get a pass, but like. I often, even more times, kind of feel like with some first performances, they're going to also be the ones that are just, like, really phenomenal, too. Because, like, this is, like, a performer that is just very raw. This is their first time. They, like, kind of have no fears about it. And that seems to be the way that, like, she approached this performance. Like, because it's so physical um, and there's not a lot of dialogue spoke. A lot of emotion is told by facial expression. And, um, you know, we we go on this ride with this character who we are presented as, like, this psychopathic killer. And then you're, like, kind of watching this journey and, like, okay, are they going to get away with it? But also are, like, is this character going to be redeemed in any way? Um, But then, you know, so we have, like, the emotional stuff there. But then just uh, the physicality of this performance. I mean, like from the opening uh, car show scene where we have her uh, doing this dance uh, on this car and it like kind of, you know, one, it is one of the hottest things of 2021. But two, it also like kind of gets it in your head, this, um you know, sexual relationship that she has to cars that she lacks with humans. Like, because this is really the only like scene where she is sexy at all. Like the rest Ooh. of the movie, we are seeing her body um, in various phases of deterioration. Um, the rest of the movie, her body is presented as not sexy at all. Like, or like not, not sexy, but like not with that purpose. But then like right. to come out with this scene where it's like, that's the one scene. And it's like, because mm-hmm. that's her like connection to the cars and like this cold and the machinery and stuff. And like, kind of, mm-hmm standing in for like you know she might be like an asexual person possibly um you know she doesn't have much of a connection with guys like she has just like kind of emotionless sex and then um uh, almost has sex with a female but then like doesn't really work out and then like the only time she gets like true satisfaction is with a fucking car or a fire truck (laughs) um and then just like Um, and then just like, you know, this character beats himself up throughout the film and like, you know, just like her dedication to like, you know, all the makeup and like, you know, probably had to do a prosthetic nose and like really transforms and like, looks like a different character. Um, which, you know, goes along with the story of her like passing for this, um, missing person. Um, just, uh, the, the willingness to do all that and, um, you know, like, like she's a very attractive actress, but the fact that like, she like literally was just like, no, like ugly me the fuck up. And like, (laughs) I don't care. Like, let's do it. Um, and just like a super powerful performance that like, you know, um, if it was not, you know, as powerful and raw as it was to like really match the energy of the film, uh, wouldn't have been nearly as effective.
1: Well, plus she can show both spectrums of, Her physicality in that regard right Because you have that moment like you said like Probably one of the hottest scenes of 2021 Where she is very much The center of attention She's glammed up for that role where she's basically Like a model at this car show And then starts doing what is Essentially like a lap dance but Instead of a john of some sort it is The hood of a car or vehicle (laughs) and whatnot Um, And I think that Going from that To what is Her final like Like form in the sense of like very purposeful, right? It's not, Mm -hmm. not to be uh, commenting on like her sexuality or anything, but like very driven by the plot of the film and the body horror elements of the Mm -hmm. film, uh, which I want to talk about a little bit more with one of our next awards. Um, It is very interesting for this to be her first role. And at the same time, she's able to champion both sides of that type of, the traditional views of sexuality with like a female lead, right? Is that mm-hmm. she can go from what is probably the, uh, I guess, with without overly generalizing, the more traditional view of what a sexy female lead should be to the end of the film, which we know what her final form is. And it's just very interesting that at no point does that character lose anything. If anything, in that transformation, I think her performance gets even more powerful, right? Because mm-hmm. I think that... It, in some some films maybe you could view that as being like well if that is just her character in the first 10 minutes of the film and that is the extent of her character throughout the entire film it's like well how much of her performance is resting on the fact that she is this sexual icon for the film right and i think that it's interesting it starts that way which some people might view as being like the traditional viewpoint of a character like that and then seeing where she's at and if anything in my opinion her character get her performance gets stronger the longer the film goes on because she doesn't have that and not to say that she would use it as a crutch but like for lack of a better phrase I guess the crutch of her overt um, sexuality and whatnot is stripped away and then even more you get to explore her character in her own mindset and it's kind of Mm -hmm. like what you had said in terms of her character being this person that you're like, well, she's a serial killer. How am I going to be able to emphasize with this person or um, be empathetic towards them? And if anything, you become more and more increasingly empathetic with her the longer the film goes on in a way that really drives the later half of the film in a way that's completely unexpected for me. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's just an incredible performance all around.
0: Yeah, like um, I, I really... Um, yeah, just enjoyed every minute of it. Very excited for what she does like next, like, um, I, yeah. you know, to see what director she might work with. Um, so what would be, uh, your best male performance of the year?
1: Well, well that's a perfect, uh, jumping off point because my male performance of the year was, uh, Vincent Linden from oh, nice. Titian and him playing Vincent, the firefighter. Uh, he is... He gives probably one of the most heartbreaking performances from, uh, from a male perspective in terms of, like I found Rebecca Hall's performance to be very heartbreaking and whatnot, but from in terms of like male vulnerability is one of these things in film that I think doesn't get explored nearly enough, not to say obviously it doesn't get explored, but I think that he is such a vulnerable character that is consistently vulnerable and you get that from the outset of meeting his character. He is a character that I think is perfect for the film's true theme, which is like found family, which you had mentioned. I think that the way that you put asses into seats for a movie like this is to say like, oh, it leans heavily into the body horror. And that is very much one of the main features of the film. But I think that the theme of found family and just from both angles, right, this idea that she doesn't have a family really. And then his family is forever fractured. And then all of a sudden he has the solution to that fractured nature basically fall into his lap and whatnot, and that she adopts that new identity. And essentially he knows that, right? And he discovers Mm -hmm. that. And that doesn't change the fact that she is filling that gap in his life. And it's not the only thing that he struggles with. And I think that that is what stops his character and his character's grief from ever necessarily being just the plot device, because as you see, like he is the captain of this fire station, but he's the oldest person there, right? He's middle-aged or almost a little older than that. And when we meet him, what is he doing? He's like taking steroids and he's working out and like literally beating himself up every time he fails doing chin-ups and things like that, because he's grappling with his own mortality and the fact that he's aging out of his profession, essentially, in that mm-hmm. every day or every moment that goes by is that He's getting weaker and weaker, which challenges his ability to lead, I would assume, like a group of a profession that is very youth oriented. And it's like it relies on the fact that these men that are young and strong are going to be the ones that are leading the fire brigade and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And he feels not only threatened by that, but it's the reality that he's doing things that are in the long run going to be a detriment to him. And he knows that. But then channeling that with the idea that like, yeah, he's dealing with this reality that his child is essentially lost forever. Right. I mean, the reality is is that more than likely he's never going to find his actual child and to have a surrogate child basically fall into his life. And initially he's like, well, yeah, he looks like Adrian, but then when you have that realization that it's not, and he still accepts her for who she is and the role that she facilitates, like that's an incredibly powerful and emotional moment that I was not expecting. Again, this Mm -hmm. movie was sold to me as it being like, yeah, this is the new new wave Cronenberg with body horror. This chick fucks cars and she becomes power metal and things like that. And it's like, (laughs) yeah, those moments are memorable, but that's not what sticks with me and why this film, you know, this film just got snubbed, I think by the Academy for foreign films and things like that, which it's not really surprising given their track record with uh, horror films and the genre and whatnot, but furthermore, I think it shows that they're looking past a lot of the core of what makes this film so emotional. And so, uh, you know, like you said, it, this film made me feel things that a lot of other films didn't. And mm. that's a very powerful thing. I think that horror is able to do in that it's ability to really subvert expectations by being purported as being one thing. And then, you know, it, Telling you anything you haven't heard, but just in general, it being a genre that is able to, on the surface, be very familiar. But when you get down to the core of it, it's able to express a lot of emotions and a lot of very real world traumas that don't get explored nearly as eloquently sometimes as uh, the horror genre is able to. And, you know, it's a a pretty unforgettable performance and pretty upsetting, you know, especially as somebody that, you know, I'm not a father myself, but the idea that you could have a child, raise a child, lose the child. And then think you're getting the second chance at having your child back realizing that, okay, this is actually not your child. I'm being duped, but not caring because being duped in the kind of ruse of having your child back fills that piece of you. That's been missing. Like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a pretty powerful emotion to be able to convey on screen to somebody that they themselves have not had a child or anything like that. And, you know, I think that's a pretty remarkable thing to do in a film and it's, a performance that i don't think i'll ever forget yeah no it's uh
0: the the perfect uh counter performance to agatha russell's uh performance like yeah because like i didn't know about any of this part of the 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 movie you know and like where it would go and like he really is the emotional core of it and also like providing the um other angle you know this film kind of you know yeah like you said like the, the vulnerability of men and, like, masculinity and then, like, also the fear of your body breaking down on you, rejecting you, you know? And, um, you know, this is something that he's dealing with with his just getting older and the steroid use and then with uh, her, you know, dealing with being pregnant with a car baby. So, you know, uh, super, super impactful film uh, in his performances for sure. Um, my favorite male performance is um from one of your favorite films, from Silent Night um by Mr. Matthew Good, um, Matthew Good um his character is uh, Dad of the Year, um <laughs> he's just such a very wholesome character and his. Um, uh, his connection with his each member of his family, like he like has a different way of communicating with everyone, like whether it be his wife, whether it be the twins, or whether it be Artie, and um he portrays that in just like such a very authentic way, um at, like you know like kind of like in like you know my dad has you know I have three siblings so it's like you know the way that I see my dad in the way that he communicates with us, like, I see that, you know, and, like, it felt very authentic, um, he had, he was very funny, he had some funny lines throughout the movie, um, but, like, when it came down to a lot of the serious stuff, like, he really delivered, um, especially in dealing with, like, you know, the, um, the, the, one of the main subplots of the film, which, again, um, we will be talking some minor spoilers for certain films in this episode, you've been warned one last time, But um, the way he, like, uh, talks to the children about this uh, plight everybody is having on whether they're going to take the pill or not. And, like, um, his interactions with Artie when Artie starts questioning this. And uh, he just does the best that he can, like, you know, like, in trying to empathize with Artie, um, no longer treating him like a child. um, Like, you know, like, just talking to him like a regular, like, person. And um, he just has so many layers throughout the film that I just really appreciated. Um, I mean, and like, especially like being a dad, like to the very end, like the, the end scene with the bit with the Coke can, like, you know, they are getting ready to take these pills to do their mass suicide. And the twins are like, Oh wait, we're going to share a can. No, you said we each get one. So he has to go back downstairs, (laughs) get another one. And then they're upset that the cans are warm. So then he has to go back downstairs and go get ice. And then they open the cans and then one of them shakes up and like sprays everywhere. So he has to go get another can. And it like, (laughs) they keep pausing on these moments. uh, Like, I mean, he just has this extreme patience with his children. And then like, he like, every time he has to go back out, he like pauses in the hallway and like does something. And like his like reactions in the hallway escalate with each one. (laughs) And it's like the perfect amount. And it's just like in this super bleak scene, um, mm. of like what's really about to happen. And then this uh, scene right here uh, delivering just like the last, like real comedic stinger of the movie. Um, he just really sold it super well. Yeah. Um, again, I just think he is like the best movie dad of the year.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I totally agree in that the way that he speaks to his children based on their sort of like, you know, the order, there's the twins and then there's his older son, And, you know, that really ties into the reality of like how fathers talk, like I have a younger brother and the way that my dad occasionally talks to me is very different than the way he talks to my younger brother. Who's like, he's not that much younger than me, but still two years is still an age gap and the difference. And it's like, based on, I mean, who knows, uh, who knows me better than my dad or my younger brother, like my dad. And so it's the type of thing where I think Matthew Good does such a fantastic job of tapping upon such a range of emotions right he has the bit where he's just like at one point chastises them for using certain swear words which is just like a funny thing and talking mm-hmm. about their different age groups and like what they're allowed to say but then i think towards the end of the film there's such a pivotal moment that really you know it it got me kind of choked up where like his son sees the result of what happens when somebody takes a pill and then seeing how traumatized the child is and seeing how That completely off kilters Matthew Good's reaction to the reality of what's about To happen and it finally Truly sets in for him in a way that you Haven't seen previously Um, And that you know that Fucked me up in a way because like you know A brief tangent like uh, Within the last year when I was like visiting my parents like my dad Was doing some plumbing bullshit or something At the house and like he like burned His hand while he was doing this plumbing Shit and like seeing him Like hurt and like scream in a way that I had never seen before and like see a an, a side or an element to my dad that I'd never seen before. And you know, I'm a, I'm gonna be 30 next year and I'd never seen this side of him before. Like that was like a fucked up moment. And it yeah. was a way of seeing a parent in a way you've never seen them mm-hmm. before. You know, it was like when I was a kid seeing somebody at a funeral that I hadn't seen in a while and seeing them react to the person we were there for or commemorating or whatever for the funeral. And just like those moments when you see adults, people that are much older than you in a way that you've never seen them before. That's a fucking, that's a heavy thing. And the older I get, I find the more mm. that the ability of normally a director to be able to orchestrate that, but the fucking, obviously, of course the actor that is leading that, like, whew, that was that as if as bleak as this film is, as heavy, this film is the way that they were able to capitalize on that very real world emotion and feeling and you know a younger child seeing their father react in that type of or a parent regardless of whether it's a father or a mother i think tapping into that in the most unrealistic of scenarios is an incredible feat of this film and i totally agree matthew good dad of the year yeah like uh yeah that scene where he you know because he's kept
0: his composure throughout the entire film he's been like you know just like the level-headed one um and and yeah seeing him lose it for a second but then you know, he loses it, has this moment for a minute, and then he, like, again, just regains his composure. And the way he, like, kind of portrays, like, you know, the the strong patriarch of a family in this way, where it's a lot more of just, like, being the emotional rock of the family, not, like, the, the traditional uh portrayal, where it's just, like, they, like, yell at everybody, and they're super stern, and, like, you know, right. they're the serious ones, and they're all-powerful and stuff. And, like... It's not like that, like, you know, and he's not the typical, like, you know, like, big, like, macho, like, dad that takes care about it. Like, he looks like he's, like, out like, 5'9 or something, and, like, he, but he's the, he's the emotional rock of the family, and that really holds that film down uh, really well. So, um, our next award, we will shift into our best scare scene in a film. Um, this can be just like, you know, just the, your scariest favorite sequence of a horror film
1: this year. What do you got for me, Jay? So my favorite scare of the year is from Damien McCarthy's film, Caveat. Um, and this is a film that I think is the best example of not only a jump scare of the year, but probably a jump scare of the last few years because of the way in which it is so expertly employed. Um, I think jump scares are one of those like things that when you talk about horror, uh, people, uh, maybe more mainstream audiences, like to say, like, well, horror is just jump scares. And you know, there's some truth to that in the terms of an over-reliance maybe on something that seems like a quick fix for horror. And you definitely see certain films every year, a handful more than that, that have an abundance of these rather than the proper buildup to that. And I think Caveat is an example of a film that, very sparingly uses them. There might be one or two at the most in the film. And this one that I want to talk about is so simplistic, but the way in which it's employed and the way that it builds off of that moment has, you know, I rewatched it today before uh, rewatching it, the recording with you and it still hits just as hard. And it's just as bone chilling. And, you know, uh, for the people that don't know caveat is this film about uh, this desperate drifter named Isaac, who suffers from partial memory loss. There is a bit, this is my own caveat for the film. There is a little bit of a buy-in uh, with the film in terms of like the sort of a little bit ridiculous nature of this job that he takes where basically he agrees to babysit the niece of this very sort of brief acquaintance that he has. And he the caveat of his job of babysitting her in a house that is on an island in the middle of nowhere is that he has to wear this vest that chains him to the property. So A, he can't leave and abandon her. But also he's not allowed to go into certain parts of the house based on the length of the chain
0: mm.
1: requires a little bit of buy-in. Uh, but I think that if you're like me and I'm sure you're the same way, like you can look past that in terms of it's servicing moments of this film that I think really capitalize on elements of horror that get overlooked. But anyways, it gets to the point where Isaac is able to explore parts of the house and he's crawling through like a, uh, What is, I would say, like inside the walls of the house at one point, he's like shimmying his way around Mm -hmm. and he's shining this flashlight. And it's very restricted nature in terms of the way that the scene is shot. It's very claustrophobic. He shines and he sees there's an opening, shines the light. He doesn't see anything. He looks away. He starts shimmying more. He shines again and he sees a face there for not even half a second and the face disappears. This is probably there's 20 minutes left in the movie. I think when this happens, and you haven't had a jump scare like that throughout the film. It is a film that is very orchestrated in regards to what I would say is akin to like a folk horror film in that you feel something is wrong in the house. You get these brief little moments, but you don't get it really in your face scare moments. And to get to this deep into the film and not have a moment like this, that is just reliant on something pops up and there's only 20 minutes left is incredibly effective. But it's the way in which the film builds upon that brief jump scare into an entire sequence that lasts five minutes after that, that is so terrifying. And I I believe you haven't seen the film,
0: right? You haven't seen it yet? No, I haven't seen it yet. I even tweeted at shutter about it because I was like, yo, I've been trying to watch this movie for days. Um, but that's, uh, like that's really what drew why I want to watch the movie though. I did know about the uh, premise of it, the concept. Um, and that's really what like made me want to see it. So, um, so
1: what, what I'll say is, is that that brief jump scare that doesn't last for almost more than half a second, it builds to a sequence that's a little bit longer. That's only a couple of minutes, but that sequence is so much more effective because of when uh, Damian McCarthy chooses to employ what a lot of people view as being this very sort of run of the mill jump scare. And it is very simplistic, right? What I described is not something you haven't seen before,
0: mm-hmm. but it's
1: the way in which he layers that moment with a bigger scare and a moment that it just has an immense payoff. And the way in which he constructs that entire sequence, even though I didn't rewatch the whole movie, I just watched that 10 minute window of the movie before this, it still is bone chilling in a way that it is stuck with me. And it shows that that director has, I think, a bright future and horror in a way that few other moments had indicated for me this year.
0: Yeah, this was uh, kind of a tough one um, for a bit just because I felt like I hadn't uh, had too many big scare moments. Um, A lot of the films, I guess, uh, have been more of like, um, I don't know, more horror in the intensity or something like that or just like in like straight violence more than um, a lot of like scary movies per se. Um, But watching a movie the other night did get, um, I I remember even seeing an article um, about this specific scene. And um, I was, so I was excited to watch this movie um, to watch out. We need to do something. Um, Love um, the one location horror, this family kind of going crazy inside their very luxurious bathroom Um, (laughs) during a tornado. Um, this is a Midwestern family nightmare. Um, and it's, you know, they're stuck in this bathroom because a tree is up against the door. Uh, it can only open a little bit. And, uh, we've gotten, you know, um, some things here and there that have all been fairly normal up to this point. You know, um, like there's a snake that gets in the bathroom, which also becomes another thing later on in the movie. Um, but... <laughs> We get one of the just, oh, man, this it made me so happy. They uh, hear uh, um, what they think is a dog outside the door. Um, they're like, oh, it sounds like a dog. Because, like, like, the sounds, it's like a, making a panting sound. And um, they're like, oh, maybe it's a dog. And the dog can, like, you know, get some help. Or, or they also want to, like, maybe kill it and eat it. Um, and then, (laughs) but they reach out and they're like, oh, it's a dog and it's licking their hand and they're like getting tickled by it, the two kids. And of course, you know, that someone's arm is going to get bitten off or something or get bit or attacked. You, I mean, you know, or you think that's what's going to (laughs) happen and, um, this does happen, but what you don't expect to happen is this demonic voice creep in and say, I'm a good boy like, <laughs> and uh, man it spooked me so good. Dude. It like spooked me but then I started chuckling too. I started laughing cuz I was just like, "Oh my gosh." It just like it just catches you off guard. The voice is absolutely disgusting. Yeah. Fun fact, <laughs> voice by one Ozzy Osbourne. Holy uh, shit, really? Yeah, I was, that's, what that's said, wild. that's what's in the credits. Um, in the end credits, it Holy says shit. good boy is credited <laughs> as uh, Ozzy Osbourne. That's um, fantastic. Yeah, just easily one of the best moments. Um, it just, it really caught me off guard. It, the voice was creepy. Um, runner up would be uh, also the demonic voice in St. Maud is another mm. great demonic voice. Um, <laughs> but yeah so you and I are of one mind almost on these uh demonic moments this year yeah that scene is just so so good um but so I'm really intrigued about these awards these are our wild card awards um this is just something very specific that we really wanted to shout out from a movie um this year so um we got two
1: apiece. um so for your first wild card Jay what do you got I will say my uh, my scare of the year was neck and neck with the moment that you just mentioned. That was a moment that absolutely caught me and my buddies off guard in a way that uh, films seldomly do so because good. the movie has such a fantastic buildup to that moment. Right. Because it's not because the majority of it is like you said, it's more about the tension within the family in that isolated space. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of just like throw out that moment and you're just like, oh shit, this is very different than what I thought it was going to be. But my first wild card category, um, and you know, you, just, you literally just mentioned it being Saint Maude. uh, I'm going to title this my uh, my best edibles moment with movies this year, and that being the demonic voice from Saint Maude. Um nice. And this ties very much into what I had said in the previous episode about like Saint Maud being a very even-handed uh, attempt at or uh, successfully attempt at kind of subverting the audience expectation and is this all in our head? Is this a reality? And, you know, me being uh, admittedly blitzed out of my mind on edibles, watching this for the first time and it taking that turn where you get that demonic voice, you get that demonic moment where the person that she's been caring for and you get this, she, I think uh, even like I had to go back and watch it a couple of times, but she like gets an elongated neck and she throws mod across the room mm-hmm. and I'm like oh shit it's finally happening and it freaked me out because I was like basically biting my nails at that point like oh what, what is it going to be is it all in her head are we going to get that like creepy overt demonic moment that I think part of everybody that watches that movie is hoping for the entire time right because you know even if you wanted it to be this very uh, this succinct allegory for somebody that is grappling with a mental illness and seeing their altered perception of reality, you still at some point want that moment that kind of like ties into the more supernatural bit. Mm-hmm. And then you get that and having that very hallucinatory moment where it's like, Oh, you get to see what her demons look like. And that was such an Oh shit moment for me that I was like, I have to go back and rewatch this moment now, like two or three times as soon as I did. Cause I was just like, it gripped me in a way that I was like, this is fantastic. This is what I want. But at the same time, that moment is then followed up with the inverse of that, which I think is so smart in that the next five or 10 minutes, and again, we're talking all sorts of spoilers in this episode, so if you haven't seen St. Maude, be warned, you get the opposite version of that, where you get Maude walking down to the beach after she kills her, and she thinks that she's just slayed this demon. She walks down to the beach, and she douses herself in kerosene or something, lights herself on fire, but you get that moment of like her ascending into sainthood, right? She has this, halluc- another hallucination where you're like, oh shit, people are bowing to her. The skies are opening up. She's about to ascend. Like this is her moment, this coming to Christ moment that she's been, uh, she's been proselytizing the entire film basically. And she was in the right. And there was a part of me where I was like, good for her. Like, I'm glad that we're going to get this moment where You have a film where there's so much doubt and there's so much uncertainty, and yet she is vilified in everything she's done. And then literally the last half second of the film, you get that dose of reality and you get the brief moment of the hallucination fades away and you get a, again, a half second of her screaming and you get to see her and her skin is of course melting and she is ablaze. And you realize She's just a crazy person that, well, which is an oversimplification, but she's just a mentally ill person that has lit herself on fire and self immolated herself in front of a horrified crowd of people. And to give audiences both ends of the spectrum of what they are more or less anticipating by that point in the film, I absolutely loved because most of those moments are given the same amount of buildup and the same amount of tension and, you know, I guess for a lack of a better way to phrase it, like the same horror money shot, right? You get to see the hallucination angle and then you get to see the reality of it. And both are just as horrifying as the other. And that's an attention to detail and attention to both ends of an unreliable narrator that I personally love. And I wish that more directors attacked both sides of that spectrum in the same way.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I'm totally there with you because I mean, we're, we're sticking we're sticking around for some more Saint Maud because uh, uh, my wild card award is also involved with Saint Maud. Some of these similar things. Um, I gave my wild card award uh, the most striking imagery. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the last episode, you know, I mentioned I wanted Saint Maud to be in the top six, but it got bumped at the last minute. Um, but it just has um, it, uh, two of my favorite sequences of the year. Um, um, the first one is the, uh, one in the, uh, when Maude is in the uh, house of the person she's taken care of and, um, she is simply going down the stairs, but Maude is feeling the, the spirits, you know, or what she thinks she's feeling the spirits. Um, you know, the film goes back and forth with like, you know, it, does she actually feel something Is she, you know, like, or is this just her kind of making it up Um, and she's, like, just very erotically, like, going down the stairs, and she's, like, lying down on them and touching herself and hyperventilating, and, like, it's just, and the camera is, like, kind of swirling in a circle, like, downwards through the stairs. Um, It's just very hypnotic. I mean, even just, like, the way the colors of her outfit contrast with like the, the lushness of this house, it's like maroon and she's wearing this green sweater. And even just like that, just like makes the, 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 the frames feel so rich in this movie. Like everything feels just like very rich. And then the other one is like, I'm a sucker um, in any movie for a good levitation scene. Um, you know, it, it a lot of times tends to be in these religious horror films or possession horror films. Um, I'm a sucker for that. You give me a shot of someone levitating and I, I'm in. And uh, I really do like, you know, it's the scene where Maude is like kind of hitting her breaking point um, of her, um, you know, psychosis or whatever she is dealing with. And, um, you know, it's like this surreal moment where you don't know um you know what's real what's not and it comes after like she's already like puked because she like drank a whole bunch and she was running around being crazy um but then like in this moment she like has this moment of euphoria and you know Ooh. you see her levitating and the fireworks are flashing in the background and she's just like i i want to i want that framed um i think i saw somebody had like a um a, a saint Maud like big like thing and, um, and it would be super cool. I want it. Um, it's just a very <laughs> amazing shot. I love a good levitation. And then it's, but then you also realize like, it's like, no, she actually just blacked out in her bathroom in her vomit. And it's like, ugh. so like when the reality sets in, it's just like, you know, uh, shifts uh, for into the finale of the film. And then like, of course, yeah, that final, final shot of the film, you know, just giving us a little, little bitty taste of it. And then, uh, and then dipping out. So, great film um uh, our next award would be the best score category um what uh really struck a chord with you ha
1: ha, ha um in a horror movie this year so the uh, score that struck a chord with me the most this year was uh electric youth and pilot priests score for uh anthony scott Burns' film come true um, this was a score that i think really bolstered elements of this movie that I was less thrilled with, like more of the mundane bits of this movie in between a lot of the dream sequences and the more overtly horror moments uh, in a way that really matches the tempo of this character's uh, plight and whatnot in a way that I found, you know, I am a uh, an admitted sucker for like Tangerine dream esque synth scores and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And like the synth pop uh, elements that electric youth is known for, yeah. Uh, really resonate with me generally. But I think in this for a film that is as heavily reliant in its effectiveness, it, I think being very dreamlike and whatnot, this score, this film is nothing, I think, without the score in most ways. Uh, like I said, I think that, uh, you know, for people that don't know, uh, Come True is about a, a, a girl that is kind of like running away from home periodically. She rolls in a sleep study that becomes this very like nightmarish descent into the depths of her mind, uh, kind of like a frightening examination of the power of dreams and whatnot. Um, and I think that this score matches that perfectly in a way. And you know, um, I know that you are not a crazy big fan of this film, but I think that the score really, for me, plays up a lot of the more mundane elements, and it really carried me from one dream sequence to the next. And I think the dream sequences are the strongest parts of this movie and everything in between is maybe pretty underwhelming filler that comes off as being boring at times, or maybe not as developed as it could be. But I found largely that this score does a really fantastic job of meeting this character where she's at. And, you know, she has this very sort of subdued performance in ways other than being this teen that is being, um, preyed upon by not only the supernaturalness that's happening in her dreams, but also like this the guy that's leading this sleep study, which, you know, that's another critique I have of the film kind of, is that there's some weird, weird stuff going on in terms of a relationship that she has with this doctor and whatnot. Um, but Blah. I think that overall, like this score does a really great job of being upbeat, but at the same time matching her sort of like the tumultuous nature of her dreamscape and the ever evolving, Sort of difficulty she has in understanding that, and kind of like matching that in a way that feels very succinct. Um, and you know, I guess I'm not the uh, the most well versed on like chatting music, but I just thought that this score. And you know, I've, I've been listening to the score since I saw it earlier in the year. And this is a score that I think does a really phenomenal job at saying or or portraying what maybe this film could have done a better job at with its characters tonally. I think the the score definitely picks up a lot of the slack in that regard.
0: Yeah, I'd, I would agree there. Yeah, um, I was not a big fan of this movie. Um, uh it came away like, I don't know, like I almost offended by it and by the, by the ending. But yes, I do have to agree. This uh, score is really good. The curation of songs is really good as well. Um, definitely was one of the highlights of the film for me. But um, yeah, wasn't wasn't my wasn't what i was hoping it would be but um that ending
1: is definitely ham-fisted as fuck and it's i'm not afraid to say that to anybody that enjoyed that you know i enjoyed this movie uh for uh more reasons than not but at the same time Mm. like that ending i don't think is we don't have to get into the whole thing that'll be a whole nother podcast but i don't think that it has an ending that's very well earned and There's a lot of downtime in this movie that's not capitalized on in a meaningful way, but I would be remiss not to mention uh, at least two of my songs uh, from that score rather that uh, I really enjoyed, which are Modern Fears and uh, Runaway. So, you know, if uh, people don't necessarily want to check out the movie, I still highly, highly recommend that score because that's been my uh, my like writing music or whatever for a while now. And I really enjoy that electric. Electric Youth and Pilot Priest album. Yeah, it's, um,
0: you know, a lot of Electric Youth was uh, featured on the Drive uh, soundtrack. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, if you like it, if you like that score and soundtrack, then check out this one. You can listen to it and make up your own movie instead of watching it. Um, <laughs> but um, so my favorite score. And it, it, so here's the thing. Um, I'm really big into scores of movies. Um, it's a pretty important thing to me, I think, that, like, kind of provides, like, a, a tonal backbone for the film, and, um, you know, I wasn't super impressed with a lot of the scores this year, not gonna lie. Um, there were a few um, that were pretty solid, um, The though I did not enjoy the uh, Candyman film this year. Um, the score for it is pretty effective. Um, I did watch, um, vicious fun the other day and it had a synth score, um, very reminiscent of the one from the Guest," but like the B sides, um, maybe a little too blatantly, um, you know, there, there were a few good scores here and there, but so I'm cheating and I'm picking my favorite score is from a, uh, horror TV show this year. Um yeah, Uh haha. I'm pulling a fast one on you. Um (laughs) the score for yellow jackets deserves um some love. I just started that the other day. Yellow jackets is fucking lit, if you haven't heard. (laughs) Um I watched five episodes in a day to like get caught up before um before yesterday or Sunday. And, uh, yeah, and I'm in love with this show. It is fantastic. And, uh, this score, I mean, the, the soundtrack is also really good. Like the, the curation, uh, especially of like the 90, the nineties, uh, era music. Um, because you know, there's two different timelines, the 96 timeline, then the 2021 timeline and, uh, they use, uh, you know, the, the music in each era is very distinct. But then, so the, the score is just so dark and ominous and it uses, um, you know, these like low, uh, choral singing, uh, mixed in with just like these like kind of very primal, uh, sounding, um, instrumentals, like the, the orchestration on it is just so good. And like the way that they use it is really cool because like they, he'll inch it in like so, so quietly, and then as a scene unfolds and it like ramps up and like, and then once you hear it and once you hear the score, you know that they're about to reveal something fucked up. Like <laughs> that's like their thing. Uh, and then like there, you're about to see something really fucked up. Like um, because the film is, or the show is basically like the, the soccer team crashes in the wilderness and they have to try and survive. And they're stuck out there for 19 months. And then so we are seeing um, the surviving adults in their adult life and um, someone is like kind of blackmailing them. And uh, meanwhile, you are kind of watching in the past because everybody wants to know like, you know, what happened while they were in the woods? You know, how did some people not survive? And you kind of have it uh, descending into this, you know, Lord of the Flies kind of situation um, with some uh, cannibalism and um it just like so like every t- so like this mo- show is you know you just have so many questions that you want to know and you want to know what happens mm. to what character based on who is still in the present timeline And you just, uh, the way that they use it to build up the, the tension, the mystery, and then like, but then they cue you in and then you like are trained to like, know like when you're watching a show and then you hear those fucking voices start coming in and you hear the fucking tribal drums and you're like, Oh shit, something's about to (laughs) go down. And then they fucking hit you with the fucking thing. And then the fucking music just like swells up and hits you in the face it's um really great. Um, the score is done by Anna Warunk uh, Warunker and Craig Wedren. Um, yeah. So if you guys aren't watching Yellow Jackets, watch Yellow Jackets. It's fucking lit.
1: As somebody that's only watched the pilot literally last night for the first time, uh, yeah, I totally agree in terms of the score. Like, it does a really great job early on in one fucking <laughs> the first fucking episode, of the pilot of establishing the periods based on the music. And I think that they do a fantastic job on that pilot of just like introducing you to the players and they introduce the stakes of what they went through from the first 30 seconds of that. And then playing that backwards essentially in a way um, is really well done. And, you know, the music I think is, if it didn't open the way that it opened, the music would be a fantastic and is a fantastic indication that uh, shit gets dark real quick and establishing those varying timelines, I think is a fantastic way of doing that with music. Yeah, it's,
0: um, it's, it's really good. I'm, I'm full in on the yellow jackets train buzz, buzz, buzz. Um, so our next award is a, is a biggie. This is, um, you know, like this is a big staple of horror every year. We got to talk about the death, best death or kill. Um, so I'm intrigued to see which route you went with Jay, whether it be, you know, a slasher monster killing someone or somebody just dying of an epic death or something.
1: I'm intrigued to see where you went with this one. Yeah. You know, uh, I think my honorable mention for this category would probably be just the absolute carnage that, uh, old Mike Myers unleashes in Halloween kills. But I think he was definitely outdone by our boy, uh, Gabriel in Malignant, hey. and Malignant and, I would say that it's more of a sequence than a specific one, but like his jail cell and police precinct slaughter is the sequence of the year for me, Uh, Mm -hmm. whether it be just horror or action in general, like that entire sequence of the audience learns who Gabriel is and that he has been so much closer than any of us have anticipated the entire film, or maybe if you'd guessed it rather, Um, but it is, Not only the reveal, but then showing him in a light that we haven't seen previously, right? Because all the deaths leading up to this entire sequence have been very uh, uh, Giallo-esque, right? It's this idea that it's like, well, there's this figure and he's very brutal, but it's one-on-one. He's preying upon these people that aren't expecting it. Mm -hmm. And now we get to see him in this entirely new light that is expanded upon in a way that, at least for me, I was not expecting. And this comes into my high praise of James Wan's direction of this film and his time away for a little bit from the director's chair of horror in that his time making action movies and superhero movies and these massive big budget movies, Mm -hmm. that shit pays off in dividends in this movie because you get the largest set pieces we've seen in this film yet with, in terms of the kills in that. Yeah. There's this confined claustrophobic where, okay, Gabriel's in the cell we get this reveal and he just starts killing people with his hands and using people as human shields and breaking necks, breaking bones and snapping limbs. And then he gets free. That's the opening. And that is a fantastic opening because you think you've seen basically the ceiling of Malignant in terms of like what they're able to do in terms of the prosthetics and the practical effects and whatnot and the brutality. But then they take it to a whole nother realm in that now mm-hmm. he's got his coat. Mm-hmm. Now he's got his weapon, his blade and whatnot. And you get to see him duke it out with all of these people that are not perceived the traditional being perceived as victims right now. He's facing off against cops with handguns and shotguns and everything. And even they're not a match and seeing a new level of his physicality or the physicality and the brutality in which is able to be enacted against people that are supposed to be like the best of the best, the trained of the best or whatever. And like Gabriel very loudly says like, all cops are bastards and the most brutal means of possibilities. And uh, just his ability to like the physicality, the ducking around, the crawling around the throat slashes and the impalements and whatnot. It is a, uh, it is a sight to be seen. And it's one that, you know, for anybody that is uh, part of like action Twitter or anything, or likes action movies and uh, likes to Google those types of like shootout scenes or fight scenes and things like that. I mean, that scene is the cream of the crop in my opinion for anybody that has action sensibilities that likes horror because it is this brutal unmatched shot and scene or sequence and whatnot uh in my opinion because that scene absolutely fucking rips and it's my favorite horror sequence of the year
0: gabriel for fucking president i mean Real know, talk. he literally said you haven't seen my final form and then <laughs> decimates an entire police station followed by the most epic chair throw uh, in a, in a horror movie ever, yeah, <laughs> Gabriel um, is is number one. Um, my favorite deaths and kills come from a movie that was probably that was probably my biggest disappointment of the year, unfortunately, and that was Candyman twenty twenty one. And um, though I did not care much for the story, I mean, I liked some of the ideas that they had, but then what they chose to roll with throughout the film, just um, ultimately didn't do it for me, especially the bullshit ending. Um, But I will, I do got to give it up for the death sequences in this movie, Um, particularly the first three, the main three where um, in the first one in the art gallery, Um, the gallery owner and his girlfriend are, um, you know, trying to get sexy in the gallery. And then they summon Candyman from, um, uh, what's his face's, what was his name? Aaron? Uh, Yeah. Aaron. Um, from his exhibit and they summon Candyman for the first time of the movie. And, uh, the way that they only show him in shadows and on the projector and in the reflections, is just super cool. Like these are things that I, you know, I obviously, I love the original Candyman, one of my favorite movies, but you know, Candyman's not very creative in that film. You know, he really just like mm-hmm. kind of pops up and then guts you. And then that's about it. Um But in this one, you know, we, you know, take, you know, the idea of, you know, Candyman being summoned through the mirror. So like with these reflections and shadows and stuff and like, like I mean, we see Candyman f- levitate a little bit in um the first in the original, like he, but it's like a really weird scene where he's like levitating horizontally above <laughs> Helen. Um, yeah. it's kind of goofy looking. <laughs> but then in this one, like I like that Candyman floats um, mm. um uh, throughout the entire movie. I thought that was a really cool detail, and um Absolutely. the the one where we don't really see him at all. Um, when he kills the, the art critic in her apartment and it zooms away from her window. Um, it's mm-hmm. super fucking cool. And, uh, and of course the, the bathroom scene too, where um, we like see it only from like um, underneath a bathroom stall and in like a, in a pocket mm-hmm. mirror, um, all these really creative things that they did, um, you know, utilizing, you know, today's technology to update, you know, Candyman and bring him into the 21st century of killing. And uh, and I thought they even though I did not enjoy the film, um, the kills definitely, you know, at least left me with something to be
1: uh, happy about. Definitely. I, you know, I I think I liked that movie more than you did, but I, I totally agree that Nita Costa did such a fantastic job of updating Candyman's kills or maybe just the portrayal of them, like you had said. But at the same time, they felt perfectly in line with candyman yeah with the original right I know I mean regardless of how anybody feels about the rest of the film I feel that the way in which she chose to portray that those elements you know at least with the original one I think people over describe it as being a slasher but I never lead with that description and I think that she had a very sensible way in terms of carrying on the slasher elements of that film without making it feel like it was leaving the more. Psychological sort of um, uh, Folklore race conscious Storytelling that was in the original And in this one it never felt For me at least like She was leaning it more into like The slasher camp or something like that Everything felt Mm. perfectly in line in regards to the kills With what Candyman would be capable of Kind of like what you said she took elements From the original but then expanded On them in a way that was more In line with more modern You know directing cinematography or just the technology to make those happen i mean that art gallery scene is amazing i think and that's one of those scenes that i don't think enough people talk about when they're kind of like talking about their moments of the year like that's an amazing sequence regardless Mm. how you feel about the rest of the film i mean that's an all-time scene for me just because of the ways in which she plays with what's been established from the original and expands upon it in such a creative way not only from you know what that character does who he targets in these things but the way in which you're portraying that character i just love
0: yeah none of none of my issues with candy man were on the technical side uh nia da costa did direct the shit out of the movie like i'll yeah. give her that for sure um and speaking of which um we got a couple more awards left and uh, this next one's a pretty big one it is uh the best director of 2021 uh what you got jay
1: so my uh, best director of the year is going to be Camille Griffin for Silent Night. Uh, like I kind of said in our last episode, this is not only this year, but I think the last few years, just such a masterful juggling of genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and from the outset, again, I went into this blind. That's a luxury that I don't know everybody's going to have uh, in terms of just you know our exposure to trailers, to blurbs, to reviews, and things like that. But going into this blind, and even if I hadn't. The film's approach to the big reveal of like, yeah, there's this poison gas plague that's basically spreading across the country or the world and it's going to kill everybody. So they have this dilemma of are we going to take this pill the government has issued to kill everybody or are we going to endure a painful death, basically, which is what the government has told everybody Um, and her ability to subvert people's expectations up until about 30 minutes of the movie is I think pretty masterful in that the inclination might be for a lot of people, directors to be or writers to be like, well, we need to hint at this early on in a big way. But there's so much restraint in the first 30 minutes of this film that you pick up on a lot of like things that are awkward or they're, you can't quite put your finger on why this is happening or why people are behaving this way or why they're so, forthcoming with certain bits of information. But as soon as the reveal occurs, whether or not you know it, you're like, well, of course they're behaving like that. Why wouldn't they? Um, And that is, I think, again, just such a powerful handling of, or a masterful handling of both dark comedy and horror and subverting the audience expectations. Because even if you know what's coming, that restraint in not having that Be said by any of the characters for a third of the film, I think, is such a smart way to play it because otherwise the entire film is built up upon that. And I think that she proves in that first 30 minutes that it's like, well, it's more about the people that are enduring this rather than that apocalyptic event. Um, And the ability for this film to walk that tightrope that I talked about in our previous episode of dark comedy. And horror is one that I very seldomly find a lot of horror comedies are able to achieve. A lot of the time when I watch a horror comedy, I'm like, well, you should have just made a dark comedy or you should have just made a horror film because it just it tends to lean in one camp more than the other. And this film, you know, it even in talking about how bleak it is and how it's an incredibly upsetting film at multiple turns. And you know, it's a movie that I can't recommend enough, but it has the caveat that it's going to ruin most people's fucking evening. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it's not a feel good movie at all.
0: Uh, and that was, I
1: recommended it to one of my buddies and he was like, thanks for ruining my fucking night. Like I loved it, but it ruined my night. And I was like, well, once in a while, you need a movie that, you know, like you and I have been sort of saying, uh, it makes you feel something. And even if it makes you feel like shit, it still made you feel something in a way. And it's, it's not that it made you feel like shit. And then you're like, well, I'm never going to revisit that because for me, this is a movie that I definitely want to rewatch in the future. And it's one mm-hmm. that I look forward to because I know I'll get more out of it a second time. Cause I'll pick up on elements and nuances that I didn't the first time, because now that I know the reveal, but almost even if I didn't know the reveal, I would still be like paying attention to bits of dialogue or, or characters that are more forthcoming sooner with certain bits of information and things like that. And, it's a movie that it never completely, it never, com- I never completely bounced off of it. And that is the biggest compliment I can give this And that as bleak as the movie gets and as fucked up as the movie gets, I at no point was like, okay, I, you know, I think I've had enough of this. I mm. always was brought back to it because of that masterful understanding of comedy and injection of dark comedy. And that like the one moment that stands out to me the most is probably when one of the couples, you know, it's um, these two women and her spouse or her girlfriend essentially like has a relapse right at the end of the world is that she's been dry and sober. And she's like, well, fuck it. I'll have one beer. It's the end of the world. And then of course she relapses and gets shit face drunk and passes out. So her significant other force feeds her uh, one of the suicide capsules. And then what happens as soon as the, she wakes up is that she's drunk as fuck. So she pukes up the capsule. And it's like, that's one of those little dark comedy moments that like, it brought me back into the movie. Cause it's like as bleak as that moment is it's lifted up or I don't know, it, it isn't undercut by an equally bleak moment. It's like, well, she's drunk as fuck. She's going to go puke. That's what we all do when we get too drunk. And it's like, And all of a sudden she is going to survive because she has expelled the thing that was going to kill her. Meanwhile, her spouse, and we both know, finds an alternative that is more morose than anything almost that happens in the whole movie. And that's such an example of and, you know, it's a fucked up moment. I'm not going to say that it's not it's not incredibly uh, bleak and upsetting, but. It's a moment, though, that like recognizes that if there isn't at least an instance of dark humor or irony in this, a lot of people are going to bounce off this. And even people like us that Mm -hmm. really like horror and bleak horror. And, you know, I don't know if you like dark comedies as much as I do, but it's the same thing that it's like the film is able to weave in and out of both of those genres in a way that it never leans into one influence too much over the other. And I think that that's what makes this my favorite movie of the year in a way that I did not see coming. And it's been such a pleasant surprise, you know, for as fucked up as a movie as it is.
0: Yeah. Like it's a movie that definitely had to be handled with, um, very specific direction and understanding of the tone and the subject matter of it. Um, the, in the trailer, it reveals that like some, for some reason it's going to be the end of the world. It doesn't mention the gas, but it does show Mm. a cloud of gas, like at the end of the trailer. Um, but it does not mention, but does not mention the pills though. This is why I fucking
1: hate trailers. (laughs) Yeah, sorry.
0: (laughs) Which I mean, so I mean, I was still excited going into it, just being like, oh yeah, like I like this, like the concept, like it's like this last Christmas before everyone's gonna die, and like, Mm. is it actually gonna happen? And um, but then the introduction of the pills was like kind of like the real like you know tonal switch for me. Right. In, you know, and then it like kind of brought up all these different questions and themes for the rest of the film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it had to be, uh, handled particularly. And, um, it definitely was, I think this was their directorial debut as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, coming out the gate, swinging love that. Um, my director is also the director from my favorite film, a uh, 2021, um, and Julia de Corneau from T10. Um, again, this uh she directs the shit out of this movie like she directed the shit out of raw she came out swinging people loved it and then she was like i'm coming at you and i'm gonna make it even weirder i'm gonna make it even grosser i'm gonna make it um make less sense i'm gonna kind of just give you um all these ideas that i'm gonna provide i'm a provide questions, but then I'm not going to give you answers really. Like, I'm going to just give you, um, possibilities and like the way that it's just, everything is handled from the body horror sections to the, uh, the violence, but to also these like moments of like, you know, like you have a few moments of just like pure bliss here and there where you have these like moments of like the firefighters dancing together and like, uh, Vincent's character like unwinding with his you know with his compatriots and it's like really wholesome you like have these moments in this movie that is overall pretty bleak it's pretty violent pretty demented you're following this psychopathic killer and it's dealing with just a lot of things there's a lot of uh, themes of sexuality of um, of your of like body dysmorphia in a way of um, you know traditional femininity versus you know like toxic masculinity like there's so many themes going on here and um you know julia directs it just like with this just like lack of fear like Mm -hmm. um there's so much confidence in the way that she directs and like in directing the exact film that she wants to make um like i think she's fantastic i literally cannot wait to see um what else she directs. I even want to start watching servant just cause I, apparently she directed a few mm-hmm. episodes of that. Yep. Um, just like, you know, T10 is phenomenal. And, um, she really like, you know, she was like no sophomore slump for me. She was like, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going
1: to tear this thing apart. And she really did. I'll say if you, uh, if you said make your top seven, this would have made my list. Cause the amount of confidence that she has is preposterous and you know and not to say that it's not earned but it is there's so much confidence especially with titian in terms of the amount of subgenres she dabbles in the amount of like plot points and thematics that she dabbles in it is a film that you know i i sorely need to or i definitely need to revisit it because Mm -hmm. it's one that it's I found it to be kind of overwhelming the first time I watched it. Not that I knew a great deal going into it, but it just, it dabbles in so many different things and it has a certain conviction about tackling each of the subject that feels so genuine, but it's almost overstimulating in a way because, you know, it gets sold as this movie that's very body horror heavy and there's body horror elements that are throughout it. But I feel like it's a disservice just to label it as being body horror for many of the reasons that you and I have talked about and, you know, It is a uh, a, if anything, you know, she knows how to cast the fuck out of her movies and how to direct these different people, different people coming from different backgrounds and things like that. I Mm. mean, a first timer in terms of being the lead of the film. And it turns out as phenomenal as it does. I mean, it's a a remarkable sophomore film and it's one that uh, I definitely need to revisit, but it makes me excited for the future, just like you had said, because. If this is what she was able to do with two films, I mean, the sky's the limit in terms of like what other subgenres of horror that she can blend together in a way that doesn't do a disservice to very real world traumas and situations that people find themselves in. Because again, like we talked about, elements such as um, found family and all these different things, and like identity, and none of those feel like they're at least I didn't think any of those felt like they were done a disservice despite the heavy emphasis on element more traditional Mm -hmm. horror elements such as like body horror or the sort of like almost comical uh or almost slapstick like slasher moment right when she's in the house and she's killing people and more and more people show up within the house <laughs> that she was in, wasn't anticipating which is a fucking hilarious bit where it's like fuck how many well, more of these gotta people kill I have you to kill? Too. now i gotta kill you <laughs> yeah i gotta kill you i gotta kill you oh this sweet guy is embracing me fuck it i gotta kill him too but <laughs> that moment is like pretty funny and slapsticky by the end of it but Then she delves right back into this very serious and tackled subject matter that it doesn't, you know, the more slapsticky and dark comedic moments, they don't pollute into the very real world topics that she dabbles in and she approaches. And Mm -hmm. I mean, that is such a smart sensibility, I would think, as a filmmaker, just to have the wherewithal to be like, listen, I'm going to have this fucked up bit that's going to get so fucked up the audience is going to laugh those laughs are not going to interfere with the more grounded subject matter that I'm going to approach. And that is, it, it seems like that is a much more mature sensibility to film it. Not that I know anything about filmmaking, but it seems like a much more mature approach to filmmaking than somebody that's on their second film. Oh, 100%. Like, and,
0: and the thing is like, I still don't even think we've seen her unleashed yet. So let's give Julia some money. And just like really let her go wild with something, Um, yeah, just someone to look out for for sure. And um, so we have one last award. This is our last um, wild card award, last um, you know personal specific award that we want to give out for 2021. So what is uh, your last thing, Jay?
1: my last wild card award is going to be uh, most lovable bastard which is uh, psycho Gorman from uh, Stephen kostanski's psycho Gorman um, this was a film that you know I went into it and I assumed I was not gonna like this movie at all to be honest because again like I have a very love-hate relationship with horror comedies and yet they tap into or S- Stephen taps into the elements that I love so much about horror comedies in that this film maybe leans a tad more into the horror, to the comedic elements, but at the same time, like his appreciation for genre and practical effects really bolsters this in a way that I appreciated the fact that he had such a even hand in like capitalizing on the like Saturday morning cartoon energy, but then his clear love of practical effects. Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, I'm, I love that his movie, uh, the void Uh, which he released a couple of years ago, like which is very much a love letter to like 80s Carpenter-esque practical effects and whatnot and cosmic horror and things like that, which is why I love that movie so much. And I would never in a million years watch that movie and then be like, yeah, I could see him applying that same love to a horror comedy. But in his love of practical effects, he uses those to make the ultimate Saturday morning cartoon that is more gory than any Saturday morning cartoon should be. Um, But at the same time, He's able to inject humor into that in a way that makes it very fun and lighthearted while being incredibly bloody and gory at moments uh, as well. I mean, you got to give credit to uh, Stephen Vlaehaus who does the, uh, the voice of psycho gore man. I mean, so many iconic lines so <laughs> carries that character that mm-hmm. you should be laughing at the entire time, but is still able to capture the menacing nature that a all powerful World ending supervillain should have, and even if you're gonna have him say funny shit, he still needs to be threatening in a way. Oh, but still it, not entirely threatening, like
0: yeah, he plays it 100% straight the entire right. movie, like commitment yeah. to the bit. Um, yep. uh, speaking of bits, one of my favorite bits in that movie is um, Psycho Gorman likes to tell stories of his escapades. <laughs> you know, and you want to learn his background and, like, you really want to know this stuff because, like, Psycho Gorman's yeah. so interesting, um, this, like, you know, uh, conqueror of planets and shit. And, like, he'll start a story and then he immediately will get cut off because they just don't care. The kids, like, right. they really don't care to hear his stories. They just want to be dumb and do dumb kid stuff and like they do it like multiple times he'll get even further into a story and you're like really seeing like oh shit like he's battling on this other planet and like all these people he's killed how he got his powers and then they just like are like yeah yeah we really don't care anymore shut up and um, but that's
1: (laughs) that that's the adhd energy of the entire movie though and it leans into that in the best way possible you know i'm i don't think i'm in as a fan of like the 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 kids in the movie as some people are like, mm. I think that at times they're a little over like too over the top uh, and a little too like precocious in terms of like some of the stuff, like, especially like Mimi, like Mimi, sometimes yeah. I think her character is like a little relied on too much in terms of just like how over the top she is and being aggressive and things like that in terms of just like, I don't know at a certain point it's like, yeah, I we appreciate that <laughs> her character is supposed to be the playing it straight version of psycho Gorman, except a, child uh in terms of just like calling him out on his bullshit which definitely Mm -hmm. works a period of the time but i think it's leaned into a little too much but i think overall like psycho gorman is such a phenomenal character that you know a lot i would have picked gabriel for this uh award if we you know you and i had not talked so heavily about it already and you know on my podcast and stuff and i was like let me change it up a little bit because it's Gabriel, and then it's Psycho Goreman for me because mm-hmm. no other character could go from you know ripping off the heads of homeless and demonizing people, and then dressing up as a cowboy and playing the drums and like questioning whether or not he cares for hunky boys and all that stuff. Like he has such a range that I fucking love with this character that you know it doesn't lean too much into one camp other than the other. Even though he plays it straight throughout the whole movie, right? the children basically force him into leaning into the more comedic Mm -hmm. side of things. And it is a character that, you know, you said you could see Gabriel being in a trilogy. I could see them doing two more of these Sega Gorman Mm -hmm. movies, whether or not I think they necessarily need to. I think it's a character though, that is so strong that you could take him into another adventure, whether it be on earth or his own planet. And it would get relatively the same mileage because it's that strong. It's that brutal and evil, but at the same time like mm-hmm. have this soft sensibility to him at the core of this this killer of worlds and people.
0: Yeah, I mean I think uh I, I do truly uh love our hunky boy queer icon psycho <laughs> gorman I would definitely take another movie or two of PG. Um yeah I would I would I almost did a um uh same thing like I was gonna do a wild card award for like new new horror icon for our boy Gabriel but yeah we've praised Gabriel enough Gabriel's fucking <laughs> lit and we all know it um but uh, another award that just happened today um watching uh, Nightmare Alley and I will do my best cause I know you haven't seen this so I will it, it, this will be kind of a spoiler but out of context you won't but it, it, I, I will do my best to deliver this moment but it's um, what I call the best mic drop moment of the of the year. Um, so like you're I'm coming to the end of this movie and you're the the movie follows Bradley Cooper. He's this con man, he becomes a mentalist. and um, it's like you know, you see what he's willing to do to get money, to be famous, um, all these uh, women that he manipulates. And you really watch him go from this uh, really charming guy into a pretty despicable piece of shit. And, um, you just like really watch him, uh, kind of descend out. And, um, and yeah, so, and, and so much so that, so like when you're coming through the finale, he is doing just the most worst things, just the most unspeakable shit. And then you, and he somehow gets out of the situation still, He gets out of the situation. And you're like, Oh wait, is he really not going to get the comeuppance that he deserves Cause like you you really want to, you really want him to like really get his shit handed to him. And there's a moment where you think it's not going to happen and they kind of set it up to where you think he's going to repeat the cycle and just do it all over again, but in a different, uh, carnival, um, you think he's about to like, kind of get away with it and just restart and do it again. And then it's like, he kind of repeats these cycles um, but instead they set it up that way, but then they reverse it and bring back a moment of Wilm Dafoe telling this disgusting story at the beginning of the film. Um, he tells this story, I won't spoil it, but basically he, he tells the story and then like, so when you get to the end of the movie and, um, that when you think that it's going to go one way He says one line that Willem Dafoe said earlier in the film. And then when this one line hits, it makes you realize what this guy's end fate is. And it's Mm -hmm. like, I will say it because it's only out of context, so you really won't know, but it's only temporary. As soon as I hit that, as soon as that line was said at the end of the movie, I got goosebumps because I knew exactly what it meant and that this character definitely was getting his fucking comeuppance. I was like, "Papa Del Toro, how dare I even question your authority?" Um, I mean, it's such a masterful piece of writing to cap off this like sprawling um, you know, movie. And um the movie itself is just it's really really great, really rich. It takes you for a ride and um but just like this moment that when you kind of think about it and then, like, realize how fitting it is for the end of the movie, uh, the movie very much is a, like, fable, a very, mm. a very, very dark fable. Um, and by the end of the movie, just with this singular line calling back to something earlier in the movie, um, really just, like, cranks the movie up a few notches and just, like, really is just, like, a nice, just, like, hit, like, finishing on a... Not a crescendo, but like a literal, just like again, like I said in the last episode, just like an uppercut. Like you've been, you've kind of been beat up this entire movie, um, going through it, and then just one last time, like you think that he's just gonna kind of let you faint and fall to the ground. And he goes, nah, 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 what pow, and then that's <laughs> that, that's the ending of Nightmare Alley for me. So, like, uh, definitely go check out that movie, um. I think I described it pretty well without really spoiling anything. So, Um, but yeah, that would that that wraps it up. That's the that's the twenty twenty one Bloody Awards. Um, I'm really uh, pleased with your picks and uh, some of the things um, that you shouted out with these movies. You know, um, you know, just getting to get a little bit more specific and uh, you know shout like some of our favorite moments of the year and uh, what really made our favorite movie so special. Um, So yeah, thanks Jay for joining me um, for the end of the year, the, the fight you are the final guest of season one of Blabel Simon Club. Congratulations.
1: <laughs> well, thank you as always for having me. It's always a, like I said, it's always a pleasure chatting horror with you. And I, I really enjoy, it. you know, I feel like, you know, we have similar interests, but at the same time, like you're somebody that I feel, I feel comfortable sharing a lot of maybe a posing views on horror or opinions on horror that you don't, might nece- not necessarily completely agree with, but it always, this podcast is always a, a very welcome place to chat horror, no matter whatever, end of the spectrum of genre interests and whatnot you might appreciate or enjoy. And uh, this is, this is a place that I uh, always enjoy chatting my opinions on horror with you. And uh, it, I look forward to it again in the future.
0: Yeah, man, I definitely appreciate having you on. And this will of course not be the last time that you, Join me on the podcast. Um, you will just uh, be joining me and uh, a new co-host and um, it'll be uh, fun to mix it up. The three of us. Um, at the next time I have you on, um, where can uh, the people find you and uh, tell us about the podcast.
1: Sure. So people can follow me on Twitter for uh, updates on uh, any articles I've published or uh, podcasts at not funny J. Uh, I do Two podcasts. My uh, first one is uh, Daily Horror Habit, which you can follow on Twitter at Daily Uh That podcast is film-focused, much like this one. Um, it will be returning in the new year, January 14th, 2022. Uh, I also, this year, started another podcast in association with uh, BluidDisgusting.com with the video game editor over there, Mr. Neil Bolt. Uh, you can follow the Twitter account for that podcast at Pod. Uh, And we are looking to return on January 10th, 2022. Safe Room uh, new episodes are published on the Monday and Daily Horror Habit is going to be restructuring. So that way it will be uh, releasing new episodes every Friday.
0: Nice. Yeah, definitely make sure you go check out his pod. Um, I listen to uh, Daily Horror Habit all the time. The last one I listen to is actually Psycho Gorman uh, episode. um which appreciate I, that which I really enjoyed and I will definitely check out the other podcast. I haven't listened to that one yet. Um so I will have links to um Jay's socials in the uh show notes of course, but uh yeah, this is the final episode of season 1. Uh season 2, um certain parts of the show will just kind of be formatted a little bit differently. Um we got some new segments coming in and then of course I will be uh joined by a permanent co-host. Um, So the next time um, you hear my voice, you'll be joined by Mr. Garrett McDowell as well. And we will be bringing in the new year covering the Scream franchise for the month of January. Um, So very excited to dive into that as well. Of course, we have a new Scream movie coming out. So yeah, I'm pretty excited for that. Um, But yeah, besides that, make sure, of course, whenever you are on the Um, Whatever you listen to the podcast on, rate it five stars and uh, leave a nice little review. It helps the podcast get spread to other people. You can now rate on Spotify. That's a thing now. So I will not just prioritize Apple anymore. Um, Apple and Spotify both matter equally. Um, So yeah, whatever you're listening on, um, I would love to hear your thoughts on the podcast and uh, what you're excited to hear in the next season in the new year. I am super excited, and um, but yeah, I'm happy to uh, end the year. I felt like um, I watched a lot of a lot of really great movies uh, through the podcast this year. Some of them, um, you know, jumped into like some of my like all time favorites. Um, like you know, episodes like uh, Good Manners was a, a film that like I really really enjoyed. One of my favorite watches of the year, and I loved doing that episode um like and there was a lot of movies i saw um for the first time that um uh, that gained appreciation for and uh yeah I, we had so many guests on here we tackled a few different franchises um which were super fun and we're going to do more of that in um the next season of the show we'll basically alternate months between um, covering a franchise or covering a subgenre. So, we will uh, start getting into uh, more horror franchises. So, very excited for that. Um, But I think that's going to go ahead and do it for this uh, last year's episode of the Blade Blunt Cinema Club. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Make sure you're subscribed to not miss an episode. Follow us on social media at Bloody Blunts Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And follow me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Daddy Disco. And for the last time of 2021, stay lifted, guys.